As we work through the book of James today, we're in chapter 5, verse 6, or verse 7 through 11. And as we've seen kind of throughout, James we know is about faith. He wants our faith to be authentic. He wants it to be demonstrated. And I knew that going into the book of James. But then as I've studied this, as we've gone through this, as we've gone through it verse by verse, I realize so much of it is about this wisdom. And what that wisdom looks like that we actually live out our faith. That we believe a certain thing, we understand a certain way, and therefore we act based upon that. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge that makes its way out into our lives. It's able to be demonstrated and able to be seen. And as we've gotten over the last few weeks, we've come to this place where we realize you can have two types of wisdom. You can have a gospel wisdom that's wrapped up in humility, that's motivated by humility, or you can have a worldly, selfish wisdom that's motivated by pride, that's motivated by me and a self-focus. And as I was studying even more this week, I came across this saying, and I want to share with you guys, as I heard someone else speak about these two different types of wisdom. And he said, the first is gospel wisdom is actually the way of heaven. It's as if we say, my life for yours, God, I'll serve you. That's gospel wisdom. My life for yours, I'll serve you. Whereas worldly or prideful, selfish wisdom would be, you gave your life for me, now serve me. I'll take your life and I'll, I'll take it for what I need for it. And I'm, now, God, you serve me. And we know we shouldn't say that. We know, okay, I'm not going to ask God to serve me. And so we kind of, we veil that and, well, God, partner with me. God, you get to partner with what I'm doing. And so those are huge implications when you think of it that way, the way of heaven or the way of hell. It has implications for our daily life. It has implications for eternity and how we live out this wisdom and what we truly believe. But I think that those implications are not lived out in these big moments in our lives, these moments when we're on stage or these moments when we're before everyone, these big life decisions. It's lived out in the daily, monotonous, routine parts of our lives. What does it look like from when we wake up, as we make it through our day, to when we lay our head down on the pillow? That's where our faith is lived out. We can all muster up the faith we need in this big moment, this big decision. We'll go to the Lord, we'll wait on Him. But in the daily life, the interactions with people, as James has said, as we interact and talk to others, as we speak evil against each other, and the way we plan, and the way we think about what we're going to do and how we're going to go about doing it, and then also in how we manage our resources. Those are the last three examples he's given us. And that's where our faith is lived out in these common experiences that we have. And as I was studying this, the Olympics were still going on. I didn't get to watch any, but I would kind of catch up online. And then I was discouraged because on NBCOlympics.com, you actually have to have a cable provider to be able to watch it online later. So I would be able to watch clips or little clips. And I remember once the track and field started, particularly, they would talk about all the preparation, all the training that went in for this 10-second race. You think about those guys and those women running the 100 meters, it was over in 10 seconds. And they spent four years every day, six to seven days a week, going through this routine, going through this monotonous routine, training, preparing again and again and again, day after day, all for this one moment, this one, actually 10 seconds. And in many ways, that's what our life is like. We're going through this training now. It's in the daily life and the monotony of the day and how we live out that truly determines what that moment in time will be when God returns, when He comes back. 
And so this patience that we're going to talk about today, it always accompanies wisdom. And as we've seen in James' letter, this authentic faith is always accompanied by patience. So if we have this faith, it leads to this wisdom, this wisdom is always demonstrated through patience. Augustine even said, patience is the companion of wisdom. You won't see one without the other. And so we need to understand what is this patience. And so let's read the verse together. Chapter 5, verse 7 through 11. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you, do, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So as we see at the very beginning of verse 7, it's pretty clear, be patient. That's where James starts. That's what we're commanded to do. And if we're commanded to be patient, if this is an imperative given to us, we understand what is patience. What does it mean to be patient? And so looking at this context, looking at this word here, patience is enduring misfortunes and bearing the offenses of others with steadfastness. It's enduring misfortunes and bearing the offenses of others with steadfastness. And that sounds like a bummer. This is what we're to do. This is what our life's going to look like. We're going to endure misfortunes. We're going to bear the offenses of others. And I would like to tell you something different, that that won't be a part of your life. But we all know better. We all know that's part of life. That's something we deal with regularly. We have to deal with this. We all experience it. And so I want you to think about what in your life right now is difficult. What in your life right now is a misfortune? What in your life right now are you bearing? How have others been offensive to you? I want you to get something in your mind. Don't dismiss what I'm saying. Think about an, an example. How are you dealing with that? How are you responding to that? Are you patient? Are you enduring with steadfastness? Are you bearing that offense? That's what we need to ask ourselves today. Because it's not what we believe. It's not what we write down on a piece of paper. This is how I respond when difficult times come. This is how I respond when I'm offended. It's what we demonstrate with our lives. This is what James has been pointing us to again and again. So how will we, as someone who's experienced forgiveness, as someone who's experienced this grace of the gospel, how will we respond to misfortunes? And I will confess to you, the last five weeks have been difficult for me and for my family. As I explain it, you might think, well, that's nothing big, but for us, it's been hard. Five weeks ago, Nidia left to go to Texas for two weeks. She took my kids. She traveled 3,000 miles with four kids and Renee. And except for Renee, that's a hard bunch to travel with. And then as she came back, her mom came with her, and her mom stayed with us for about 10 days. And then before her mom left, my parents flew in for their summer visit. 
And they were here some a few days at the same time, and then my parents leave to take my kids, except for Annalise, and they're going to go away for a week. And we're like, this is the time when we just have Annalise. We're going to spend a day or two away. We're waiting for this. My parents are going to take my three other kids. We're going to go away. And they left on Sunday night, and on Monday morning at my job at the hospital, the Joint Commission shows up. And every time I say that, Trent says, wow, the Joint Commission, it sounds so... And it was. It was five surveyors that go through our hospital. They're looking for anything they can find that we're not doing appropriately, that we're not doing according to policy. And what that meant for me was my week was done. I had to work 60 hours that week. I was there from 7.30 to 6.30 every night. That's just the way it was. So we didn't get a night away. We didn't get to go spend time to each other. We, we hardly got to talk. And then Sunday night, after that was over, and my parents came back and dropped our kids off, that morning, we actually, my wife doesn't want me to share, but we found that both my daughters, after going to Disneyland in Yosemite with my parents, which is not their fault, they both had lice. So Sunday morning, we start the lice treatment. That goes through all, you've seen my girls, you've seen the hair, that goes through the entire day. And then when I get back from church on Sunday afternoon, my entire living room was full of every piece of clothing and linen in my house. Chelsea came over and saw the end part of it, and I sorted most of it. We had piles and piles of laundry. And so Sunday night, we went together as a family to the laundromat. We were there till 11 o'clock at night, and then Monday morning came, and then the week picked up, and then we kept on going. There was a party for Mariana on Friday, and by Wednesday, then Thursday, Nina and I were done. And I would love to tell you that we endured, that we pressed on, that we, we were kind to each other, but we weren't. I let her have it in my way, and she let me have it in her way. We did not do well. We did not represent the gospel in my house. We didn't endure. We didn't hold on. We didn't bear each other's offenses. We lashed out at each other. We weren't patient at all. And as I share that, you may say, well, well that's understandable. All those things are going on. Or, or think about your situation and what you're enduring. And, and, and at times you're going to lose your patience. And it's understandable. But as I prayed through that, even preparing this message, I'm like, but I have the Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And I have this fruit of the Spirit that should be demonstrated in my life. And why does that not come out? Why does that not demonstrate it? And I looked at Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, and it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then it says patience. This is the same word. This willingness to endure. This willingness to bear offenses. That is a fruit of the Spirit. And obviously I didn't have it. My wife didn't have it. And if we have the Holy Spirit, we should endure differently. We should deal with difficulties different than the world does. That should be shown by us. We should be a people known for our patience. And so that can be an overwhelming command, an overwhelming thing that we're supposed to be about. It's to be patient, it's to endure, it's to bear the offenses of others. But I think for us to understand more what patience is, we need to understand what it's not. Because I think we have some misunderstandings. In the second part of verse 7 it says, Until the coming of the Lord. We're to be patient until the coming of the Lord. The first thing is that patience is not permanent. Our patience will not be required forever. Our life, as we learn from James, our life is temporary. Our life is like a vapor. It's going to vanish away. It's going to go quickly. And for the same way, our patience is temporary as well. We only have to be patient while we live this life. So we can be encouraged 
that our patience is only for a time and that when the Lord returns it's done it's over there'll be no more need for patience when the Lord returns there'll be no more need for patience in heaven and when there's a new heaven when there's a new earth we won't have to endure we won't have to bear offenses it's just for a temporary time and as I look back on those five weeks as I look back on this week and what happened I lost that perspective. I didn't hold on to that truth. I said, I can't stand this any longer. I can't take another thing. I'm going to lash out at my wife. I'm going to act out against her. I'm going to be mean to her. Because this isn't going to go away and I can't handle it anymore. I didn't realize that it was temporary. It's Sunday morning, we, all that's passed. It's over. And yet I couldn't be patient long enough. As you look back at James... Chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is how James started his letter. This is what James has repeatedly said through his letter. That we're to remain steadfast, we're to hold on, we're to continue on, enduring. And then here in the passage, he gives us an illustration. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. The farmer knows that the fruit will come. He knows that the season will end and he knows that there will be a time of harvest. He's planted the seed, he's working the ground, and he's waiting, but he knows it will end. And the same thing for our lives. We know this will end. We know this time of difficulty, this time of enduring offenses, it will end. It's not going to be forever. And to understand that it's not permanent, we have to respond now. Patience is also not passive. We have to respond. It's active. And I think this is the biggest misunderstanding. When I hear people talk about patience, they talk about, well, I'm just going to wait. They either think of patience as some passive Christian who won't confront anybody and just sits and waits and holds on and like, Lord, please just let this thing pass by. Please have that person quit offending me. I'm just going to sit here in my room and just wait for it to go away. I'm just going to wait. And patience is not just waiting. I think an example of this, and you guys know that I will use Martin Luther King whenever I can. And if you've read any of his writings, one of his most famous is A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. He's gone, he's started the civil rights movement. He and a group of men have gone to Birmingham and they've protested peacefully and they've been put in jail. And as he goes to jail, he receives this letter from the white clergymen in Birmingham, from these white pastors. And they write in this letter basically saying, why? Why are you doing this? Why can't you just wait? Why can't you just let things play out? Just wait on God to change the situation. You need to be patient. And he writes back. He says, for years now I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost meant never. And so I would say that he was patient. He talks in that letter how he and these men prepared to go to Birmingham. They prepared to endure misfortunes. They prepared to go to jail. They prepared to be beaten. They prepared to be offended. And in that preparation, they say, we're not going to respond. We're going to endure. We're going to be patient. We're going to bear those offenses. We're not going to react. But it wasn't just waiting. They acted. They moved. And I think we miss that. And right here in this passage... James says, actively, he says, to establish your heart. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's what we're to be doing while we endure. We're to be taking a look and establishing our hearts, preparing for the return of the Lord. But I think instead we want to procrastinate. I'll do that later. Yeah, I'll get to that. I'll deal with my heart. I'll prepare it. I'll think about those things. But right now, I really just don't want to think about the difficulty that I'm going through. Or we say, you know what? Being patient, maybe that's not really required. Maybe that's not a part of what I have to do. And I'll just ignore that. But the farmer doesn't sit back and wait. He plants the seed and he has to prepare the ground. He has to work the ground. We in the same way have to respond. If the farmer doesn't prepare the ground, the ground gets dry, the, the ground gets smooth, the, the ground gets cracked. And then when the rains come, what's going to happen? It's going to flood the field. The, 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 the soil is not prepared to receive the rain. And in the same way, we have to prepare our hearts. We have to focus our time with the Lord, our preparing ourselves. We're going to endure. We're going to have difficulties. We need to be ready to deal with them. Our hearts need to be prepared. And so are, are you actively preparing your heart? Is it fertile ground to receive the rain, to receive these difficulties? Or is it dry and cracked and smooth? And when the rains come, when the difficulties come, because they will come, will it just flood your life? We have to prepare our hearts to be able to respond appropriately. And you guys know because uh, Emmanuel has sent out emails and I asked Melanie to make sure I could share. But they're in a difficult situation right now. They found out a few weeks ago that they were pregnant. And then within the last 10 days or two weeks, they found out that the baby doesn't seem to be developing right. It seems too small for its age. They had a sonogram and this information came through. It looks like everything indicates that she might miss her. And we thought that would happen quickly. Well, it happened. We've been praying that it wouldn't. We've been waiting on that. We've been trying to endure. They've been walking through that. And we still don't know. But what I've shared with Melanie and what I see in their lives is that this is a time right now that they establish their hearts, that they're enduring this difficulty, that they would prepare their hearts, that they would focus on the Lord and they would wait on Him. That they need to be ready for whatever happens. They need to trust in the Lord and trust in His Word and have faith in that and pray that God would bring that baby here. But they have to prepare their hearts. They can't avoid it. They can't run away. They shouldn't think about other things. They need to deal with it. They need to consider it. And that's a difficult thing. So why don't we do that? Why don't we prepare our hearts? And I think it's just as simple because life is difficult enough. Life is difficult. There's going to be things. There's going to be challenges. Why do I want to go to God's Word and look at my heart and see all of my issues and see how hypocritical my heart is and all the things that the gospel needs to change and transform in my life? It's easier just to think about something else. I'd rather ignore my heart. So are you doing that? And what I mean specifically by that is are you going to God's Word? Are you listening to Him? Are you reading His Word? Are you considering it personally? Are you digging into it and listening to what He has for you? Are you looking in that mirror of God's Word and seeing yourself for who you are, seeing the issues that you have and asking God to transform them, asking God to change them, asking God to prepare your heart for when He returns? Because you can listen to sermons, you can listen to podcasts, you can come to church on Sunday, you can read a book about the Bible. 
but you need to go to God's Word yourself. You need to dig into it. You need to consider it for yourself, and God will speak to you. I remember before Linnea left, she was pregnant with her fourth child. Kiko was having trouble. He was going to have surgery, and we prayed for her that day. And she came up front, and she shared what was going on in her life. She shared what she was enduring. And I remember she had a list. She had verse after verse after verse after verse that she shared with us. And she would say over and over again, this is where God spoke to me and I've held on to this verse. God has really shown me this here and he showed me that here. And she would share these verses with us time after time. And that that's what it would look like to prepare our hearts. That we would go to God, that we would go to his word, that he would give us verses to hold on to, that he would give us understanding. And I will tell you that that's the sweetest fruit. When we prepare our own hearts, going to God's Word, ourselves, that will be good fruit. We kind of prefer to go to the farmer's market, pick the nice, fresh, organic fruit that somebody else has prepared. We'll, we'll enjoy their work. Instead, God wants us to endure. He says, I want you to prepare your heart. So with this wisdom, we have to prepare our hearts for the action of being patient. We understand what patience is. We understand what it's not. It's not permanent. It's not passive. But what does it require? What does it require of us? Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another's brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's really interesting here that James talks about grumbling. When people are offending you and you're going through misfortune, it's not that you would actively respond, that you would verbally abuse someone, that you would beat someone up. He's like, don't grumble. Because I know I can have enough self-control to in the moment when I'm being offended, when things are going bad, I can typically hold it in. And then what do I do once everybody's gone, once the situation's cleared? I find those closest to me and I grumble. I tell them, man, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe what this person did. I cannot believe that things are so bad. And we talk about it and we grumble with each other behind the scenes. James knows at times we can control ourselves, at least not to react openly. But our hearts eventually display what's inside. And we grumble at each other. So think about your misfortune. Think about your difficulty. Are you grumbling about it right now? Have you been grumbling about it? How are you responding? Have you complained about it to other people? Grumbling about people. Grumbling about the situation that God has you in. If we have this gospel wisdom, it will change our perspective. We won't think like that. And the way that we don't think like that is because we see ourselves for who we are. If we see God right, then we see ourselves correctly. We see ourselves as God sees us. And I will tell you that God has been patient with us. God has endured with us. He's bared our offenses against Him. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You cannot be patient with others unless you realize that God's been patient with you. You might be able to do it for a time, but it won't last. You can't exhort yourself, you can't encourage yourself, you can't will yourself to be patient. I would tell you that you can only repent yourself into patience. 
if you go before God and you realize how you have required Him to be patient with you, and that you repent of that, then you can be patient with others. And so we need to get that perspective now. Because He says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then in verse 10 and 11, James moves to the example of the prophets. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So who are the prophets? What does that mean for us? And we think about the major prophets, the minor prophets. Have we really focused on the prophets? Have we understood their lives, what they went through, what they endured? And just a couple brief examples. If you think about Isaiah, Isaiah was given these words by God and he preached them for over 25 years. And no one, not one single person ever responded. They never listened to him. They never heard what he said and changed anything. For 25 years, he preached what God had shown him and no one responded. If you think about Hosea, God said to Hosea, I want you to go marry this harlot. I want you to go marry this woman who will never be faithful to you. She will leave you again and again. But that's the only way that you're going to understand me. That's the only way you're going to understand what Israel has done to me, how they've left me, how they've been unfaithful to me. And so I want you to go and marry this woman, and that's what you're going to experience. These guys endured. Their life was difficult. They didn't have, during their lifetime, success as we would define it today. But it says, we consider those blessed. We consider those prophets now blessed because we see what God did with it. Not what was going on in their life, but what God did with it as a, as a response, as a result. And so we have to think the same way. This difficulties, they may not make sense right now. But we have to trust that God will bless us as a result of how we endure. I found a quote from Julius Caesar. It says, It's easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. It's easier to find people that will say, I'll suffer right now for this moment and it'll all be over, than to find people that will say, I'm willing to suffer and endure with pain for a long period of time. And if you think about that, that's, that's why I sinned this week, because I was like, I can't handle anymore. I want it to be over. I've got to get out of this situation. I'm going to respond. And for us to stand firm, for us to endure, for us to bear those offenses, we have to have a purpose. We have to be focused on what is the purpose of this? Why, why would I bear this? Why would I continue on? And as you look at the rest of verse 11, it says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God has purpose. He's sovereign. And we talk about that He's gracious in His sovereignty. And we have to trust that. We have to have faith in that. We have to believe that that's what the Word of God tells us. But instead, we try and avoid, we try and avoid a theology of patience. Is there a way we can figure out around that? And we try and twist scriptures and we try and understand them how we want to see them, but that they might hitch our ears, that they might satisfy us, our own desires. And so we come up with these theologies of my best life now. I'm going to have my best life now materially. I'm going to have my best life now spiritually. I'm going to realize the full potential that God has for me now. And I would tell you that both of these, to experience your best life now, those are not the truth. 
God wants us to experience an abundant life. He wants us to rely on Him. He wants us to find strength in Him. He wants us to find joy in Him. But this will not be our best life now. And in fact, we'll have to have patience. We'll have to endure. If we had our best life now, there would be no need for patience. This command would make no sense if we had our best life now. Why would we be patient if everything was right, if we could experience the fullness that God had for us? And I want you to look at this next passage as it spoke to me. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 through 5, it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We have to endure for a time. This is the time in between. If you think about the farmer that James referenced, at the time of planting, when we plant the seed, when this gospel seed was planted in us, it's an exciting time that we were thinking about. We had this anticipation about what's to come. And then during the harvest, when we realize the harvest, when we bring in the fruit, when we bring in the produce, that's going to be a time where our hope was fully realized. But in the meantime, we have to exist in between. With this promise that God has given us that we're waiting on to experience fully. I remember as a child when we would go on vacation, because I'm from Georgia, we would go to the, the Redneck Riviera. We would go to Panama City Beach in the Gulf of Mexico. And I remember having these opportunities for vacations, and we would talk about it for weeks to come, or weeks prior to leaving. And I'd be so excited, but we would never leave on time. We'd be packing and packing and trying to get everything together, and we'd never leave when we were supposed to leave. And I remember waiting and enduring and just, come on, and I've got to help my parents, and they've got to get everything packed. And they'd finally get everything packed, and then we'd have to sit in the car with my brother and my sister, and we'd drive for six-plus hours. It felt like it would never end. It felt like we'd never get to that time at the end. We just had to exist in this time in between waiting for what was promised, for waiting for this trip to the beach. And I think our Christian life is much the same way. When we come to the Lord, when we experience grace for the first time, and we realize that we are justified, that we are righteous before God, there's an excitement. We've been given this new life, and we, we take off living for the Lord. And then we're waiting, and we think about this time to come when Christ returns, and we're going to live completely with Him, fully with Him, as He intended us to be. But then we get back to the present. And we have to go through this process of sanctification. This process that we're in right now of becoming more and more like Christ. And Christ even says we're to pick up our cross, we're to follow Him. He says we're to lose our life in order to find it. It's a process of sanctification, but we can't shortcut sanctification. God is sovereign, God is gracious, and this is what He's asking us to process through. And if we skip this process of sanctification, if we try and elude it, that's selfish, worldly wisdom. So in this, the purpose is ultimately for the Lord. It's for His glory. It can't be for us. It can't be for our experience. It has to be for Him. If it's about us, then it's not going to work. It's going to fall short. It has to be for Him. So that's our hope. That's our purpose. That's why we endure. If you look back to the first words that James spoke after his greeting in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, 
He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So that's what we wait for. We wait for that day. We wait. The steadfastness produces in us. We become perfect and complete. And that won't happen a day before, a moment before Christ returns. But we continue in that until He comes back. We continue in that until He calls us home. And at that moment, we'll be perfect. We'll be complete. And so we have a choice as we live out this daily life, this monotonous life, this, these daily tasks of life. How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond with gospel wisdom? Are we going to respond with selfish, worldly wisdom? And as we do that, we need to think about Christ. We need to think about the gospel. We need to think about how did Jesus respond. He chose gospel wisdom. He said, my life for yours, I'll serve you. It was difficult for him. It wasn't easy. He suffered. It wasn't easy when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane begging God to take this burden from him. It wasn't easy when he went to the cross, when he experienced that, when he was spoken against by others, when he bared misfortunes. He suffered worse than any of us could ever imagine suffering. We have not suffered to the point of shedding blood. So we have to think about Christ. As we endure, we think about him. And at the time of Jesus, it made no sense. For the people that were looking on, they didn't understand. How would this man come? How would this man be of God? How would he be the son of man? And yet he's going to the cross. He's absorbing these offenses. He's being put to death. And the reason that doesn't hit us that way is because we have the whole New Testament to explain why. We've had 2,000 years to figure it out. We understand why he did that. We understand why he suffered. We understand why he endured the offenses of others. It was for our benefit and it was for God's glory. We were blessed by His patience. It's because of His patience, because of His enduring, that we can have life. So how will we respond? Will we respond with, respond with pride? And say, your life for mine? Now serve me? Or will we respond with humility? And say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for what you've promised me. Let me give my life for yours. I'll serve you. I'll submit to you. I'll endure for you. I'll be patient. That's what James has commanded us, and that's what would reflect the gospel. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just interpret your truth for us, Father, that it would interpret the words that were spoken here today. Lord, this environment is not great. This environment is not comfortable, Father. Lord, but you would take the words that were spoken that are of you, Father, and we would use them to establish our hearts. Lord, that your word would show us the areas of our lives where we need to be transformed by your gospel. Lord, that we would submit to that that we would submit to you or that you would give us grace to be patient give us grace to 
remain steadfast no matter what the difficulties, no matter what we face, Father, that we would trust you, that you're sovereign and you're gracious. Lord, this is just for a time, Father. Lord, and we look forward, Lord, we look forward to when you return, for when you call us home, Father, you would give us hope. And so that we would consider it pure joy. That we consider it all joy. That we get to endure for you. That we get to represent you, Father. As you were patient for us, Lord, we can be patient for you. Lord, may you be honored as we respond with joy as we deal with difficulties. Lord, may our wisdom reflect you and honor you as we walk through life. Lord, do that in each of our lives individually and do that in us as a body together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.